Okay, welcome everyone. Please find a seat. Glad that you're with us. My name is Bruce Bentley. I'm the pastor and normally the one preaching on Sunday morning. However, you get a break today. You, <laughs> you're a little too excited for that. I'll try not to take that too terribly personally. Uh, here at City on a Hill, we want to keep skin in the game when it comes to church planting and equipping other pastors. That's been our pattern the last 12 years, and we're continuing with that. Uh, uh, if you've been around for a while, you have seen and heard some of the church plant pastors that we've had come and preach to gain experience and to give us exposure to what's going on in our region regarding church planting. So we've worked with Mission 1618, a network, a church planting network that is mostly in the Twin Cities area. And now that we're actually waking up to the reality that we're part of the Free Church, uh, Brian Ferrone, who preached here last fall, he is our district superintendent. He connected me with some, uh, some new pastors that are looking for experience in preaching and are already involved in mentoring relationships and other free churches in our area, which leads us to Danny Martin. Danny, why don't you come on up and find a safe way? Oh, he's more bold than I am. So Brian introduced me to Danny. He is a pastor in residence. Am I saying that right? Okay, at Five Oaks Church. It's an evangelical free church in Woodbury, right? So uh, we've gotten to know each other a little bit and so excited to have him and his wife, Sarah, here with us this morning. Um, he is going to be with us a couple Sundays uh, to develop uh, his own little kind of mini-series around gospel fellowship. So uh, I'm just very excited to have him here to be a part of our church this morning. So would you welcome him and give him your full attention this morning? Danny, go ahead and preach the word. Hello, hello. Okay. Well, good morning. As Bruce said, I'm Danny Martin, and I'm the pastoral resident or pastor in residence over at Five Oaks in Woodbury, just up the road here. My wife and I visited with you a few weeks ago. You may have seen us at that time. We enjoyed meeting a handful of you. We want to thank you for the warm welcome we received then and now. I was invited to speak uh, as Bruce told you, I was connected by Brian Ferrone, but Bruce ultimately invited me to come and speak with you, and we met at Panera Bread over in Apple Valley, and we bonded over our shared interest in the world's greatest food. It's not tacos. It's artisanal pizza. Artisanal pizza. I'm from the East Coast. I can't help it. We love pizza. Well, over at Five Oaks, we're very blessed. We have, actually have a rotating team of teaching pastors. And one of our recurring jokes is that whenever we reach a difficult passage of Scripture in our teaching series, it seems that our senior pastor is always out of town that week. I, too, have been the victim of his very convenient vacation schedule. In fact, just a few weeks ago, it was my first time preaching at one of the main Sunday services at Five Oaks. And our senior pastor had me teach from Romans chapter 16. And for those of you who don't know, Romans chapter 16 is one of those chapters in the Bible. Some people call it flyover territory. What do I mean? Well, what I mean is that 
Romans 16 has 27 verses, and 16 of the verses is just people's names, name after name after name. It's one of those chapters. And spoiler alert, it's what we're going through this morning. So I'm sorry for setting the bar so low. It's only two minutes, Bruce. You can still get up here and salvage this if you'd like. <laughs> but all kidding aside, Romans 16, like all parts of the Bible, can form us. It is a snapshot of everyday Christians who lived in a place and a time where their faith in Jesus was viewed as weird and would later come to be viewed as dangerous or even treasonous. Romans 16, in some ways, provides us the clearest practical picture of gospel fellowship, the title of this message, because we're actually getting a look at who some of the people in Rome were and how the fellowship that they found with one another within the gospel of Jesus Christ expressed itself. So if you haven't done it already, turn or scroll or whatever it is you got to do to get Romans 16 in front of you. And we're going to be reading from Romans 16, 1 through 16. My version is the New International Version, but whatever you've got, follow along. It begins in verse 1. <clears throat> I commend to you our sister Phoebe, the deacon of the church in Cancrea, that's in Greece, if you don't know. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Me is the Apostle Paul, the author of the letter of Romans. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles, by which he probably means Greece and Turkey, are grateful to them. Read also the church that meets at their house. Read my dear friend Epenetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia, Turkey. Read Mary, who worked very hard for you. Read Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend, in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend, Stachys. Greet Apollos, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Trephena and Trephosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me, too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Narius, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege we have to gather together to worship you, to encourage one another, hear from your word. We ask that you would speak to us through your Holy Spirit as we look to the scriptures. Guide us and give us understanding. Strengthen us, renew us, and shape us by your truth. We might be equipped and empowered to walk in obedience. So as you can see, I was only sort of joking about all those names. But texts like this raise an instructive point for us, Bible readers, this. 
There are two ways to view the New Testament letters, and both are true. First, the New Testament letters, like Romans, are real letters that were written to real people. Romans is not a made-up document. It was not invented in the fourth century, like your conspiracy friend likes to say on Facebook around Easter, and all the conspiracy posts come up. It's a real letter. And what we just read is its ending, its salutation. And ancient letter salutations don't look like our letter salutations because letter writing in ancient times was an ordeal. Ink and paper were expensive. Paper was handmade. You could not go to Staples and buy paper, a ream of paper to send letters. It was handmade organic in small batches of paper. That's how you had to get your paper. And sending a letter meant that it had to be carried by someone. There was no postal service. Well, there was, but it was for the Roman government. It was not for uh, average citizens to use. So you couldn't go to the post office. You couldn't hire FedEx or the men in the brown shorts to carry letters for you. And writing and reading were professional skills that were reserved for an educated minority. Most people could not read and write. So sending a letter was a big investment. And that's why when he ends this letter, he's giving everybody a shout out. And it's so long because it would take a lot of investment to send the letter. He could not send a text message and say, hey, do you have time for a call at 3 p.m. later today? Can we chat for a minute? This was not a thing that happened. It was a big investment. So we should expect Romans, which is a real ancient letter, to end like a real ancient letter. It's a real letter that was written to real people. That's the first thing to understand. And the second is this. The New Testament letters, like Romans, are God's word. This means that though they are not written to us, they are written for us. They tell us what Christians should believe. They show us how to live. They set the bar for what it looks like in our lives when we see Jesus, not just as a great teacher who said wise things, but as our Savior, our Lord, and our God, who died and came back to life so that we could have new life as his children. The Bible is the word of God, as Hebrews 4.12 tells us. It is living and active, sharper than a sword judges the attitudes of our hearts. The Bible is the book that reads us. And in this, God speaks to us through it. If we will listen to the Bible when it is taught to us, and if we will make reading it a part of our regular lives, God will use us, use it to change us for the good. So that's our frame when we come to difficult passages that might seem like flyover territory. It's a real letter originally sent to people who aren't us, but it's also God's word, which is for us right now. So, taking that frame, frame, let's look at our text. A lot of people are referenced in Romans 16, 1 through 16. That's 29 in total. They're men and women, working class and wealthy, educated and uneducated, Jewish, Roman, and Greek, and everything in between. We'll focus on a handful of the people that were listed there, and we'll use these Christians like mirrors to hold up for us, uh, to model for us what gospel fellowship is and some of the ways that it should look in our lives today. 
So here's the first person we'll look at, Phoebe. Phoebe models gospel fellowship through servant leadership. Take a look back at Romans 16, 1 through 2. It says this, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, the deacon of the church in Cancrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people. Give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Now, the Romans did not know Phoebe, and they couldn't check her resume on LinkedIn. So Paul begins the salutation by commending her and listing her credentials. Why? Well, there was a lot of liars running around back then. They were all over the place. Even Woody and Buzz know that there was liars everywhere in the ancient world. Traveling teachers and philosophers would go to different cities and charge money to provide a lesson to people. As well, there were different people who would uh, go to churches Paul had been at and uh, do false teachings. In fact, right after our verses here that we read today, he says this in 17, verses 17 and 18 in Romans chapter 16, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. So a common problem back then. But Phoebe was properly credentialed. But why did Paul tell the Romans to welcome her? Well, the, the reason he said to welcome her is because Phoebe is the person who carried Paul's original letter to the Romans to the Romans. This was the person who made sure it got there. No post office, no FedEx, so you had to have a trustworthy person carry a letter for you if you wanted to send one. Paul writes Romans while he's in Greece, and Phoebe is from Greece. So to bring the letter, she likely had to sail to Italy from Greece, and I was curious about what that looked like, so I asked Dr. Google, said, Dr. Google, how long would it take us to do that? And Dr. Google said it would take 19 hours today, one, one way by car, with a delightful ferry ride in the middle. You'd take a car, take a ferry, take a car. It would take you 19 hours to get to Rome from Greece. But let's not forget this was the ancient world. So it probably took Phoebe several weeks, one way, by sea. And it was probably not a delightful journey. Romans 16.2 says that Phoebe is a benefactor, and a good alternative word for that is patron, which means she was very involved in her local church and quite possibly bankrolled many of its expenses. On top of that, 16.1 says she's a deacon. Some older translations you have might read servant, but the word is deacon, which is a position of service in local churches. Deacons were people usually tasked to address the practical needs of the church and its members, making sure people who had food who didn't have food or clothing, ministering to the sick, this sort of thing. This is what deacons did. And Paul writes that Phoebe is a benefactor to many and to me, which means that she very likely helped fund Paul's ministry in her area of Greece, and she may even have allowed him to lodge in her home while he did this. As a wealthy Christian, she likely hosted worship services even in her home. And her home would have been a safe harbor for any Christians passing through. They would have known they could have stayed 
with Phoebe. This, on top of whatever else she was doing on a regular basis at church for the people at Cancrea. So, if Paul could trust anybody to make sure that this letter was going to get across the sea where it needed to go, this was a very trustworthy person. Phoebe was the person. When he says Phoebe was a deacon who was a patron, he's saying she was a servant who was a leader. Greece to Rome is far. Long-distance travel was very perilous in the ancient world. It was not safe. What if Phoebe had said no when Paul asked her to carry his letter to Rome? She could have said no. Think about everything else that she was already doing for the local church. She's giving money. The church is meeting in her house, for goodness sakes. She's funding his missionary work. But she did not say no. She chose to serve at great cost to herself. And because Phoebe chose to serve, Paul's letter got to Rome. And because his letter got to Rome, the letter changed lives. It even changed the world. Because the letter changed lives in the world, it was passed down. And because it was passed down, we just read it together. We read it together because 2,000 years ago, this person whose name that comes up once in the Bible decided to carry it. Gospel fellowship is marked by servant leadership, Phoebe's. For a number of years, I was telling a couple of you this before the sermon, I lived in northern Utah. You may know that in Utah, Christianity is the minority and Mormonism is the majority. One of the churches I served there had no permanent building. Every week, they held two Sunday morning services with over 700 regular attenders in a local high school auditorium. Each Sunday, beginning at about 6.30 a.m., staff and volunteers arrived with their Starbucks. They don't have caribou out there, I'm sorry. They arrived with their Starbucks. They began the multi-step, hours-long process of transporting, unloading, setting up video and sound equipment, musical instruments, kids' toys and games and welcome signs, church bulletins and snacks and Bibles and everything else a congregation that has a church building takes for granted on a weekly basis. And after two worship services with 700 people, they would break everything down and load it all back up into trailers, all to be repeated week after week for 10 years. See, the Phoebes at that church weren't just nice to have. They were the gas in the tank. The ministry did not happen without them, period. You don't need me to tell you that like that church in Utah, City on a Hill could not function without its Phoebes. We don't often think about Phoebe when we read the Bible. As I said, her name only comes up once. But God knows her name. And you know what else? He knows yours. He sees you week in and week out, sometimes when you're exhausted, sometimes when you're frustrated, but ultimately hopeful is your servant leadership. These, when you care for the little kids, when you mentor a teenager, when you practice a song over and over so that you're ready to lead worship on Sunday, 
sees you putting the signs out front, sees you when you greet at the door, you lead a Bible study before the sun comes up, and you reach out to the needy and hurting in your community, you lead others to do the same. Sees you when you give beyond your means, pray without ceasing, when you get on your knees and clean a mess you didn't make. Gospel fellowship is the culture of a church that is faithful to Jesus Christ, and it is marked by leaders who are servants because Jesus was. We read in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25, Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Dead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man, that's Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve. Give his life as a ransom for many. So what should we do about all the Phoebes here at City on a Hill? Gas in the ground. Well, Romans 16.2 is a good start. My paraphrased version here. Receive them in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and give them any help they may need for they have been the benefactors of many people. Phoebes are not exceptions. They are examples. So let's let their service inspire us. Let's follow their lead by honoring their servant leadership. Let's choose all of us to be servant leaders ourselves. Second model for us from the Roman Christians is this, Priscilla and Aquila. They model gospel fellowship through sacrificial hospitality. Priscilla and Aquila were a married couple who served churches all over the Roman Empire. They were old friends of the Apostle Paul's, and they lived in Rome. To them, Paul says, starting in verse 3 of Romans 16, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Paul first met Priscilla and Aquila in the city of Corinth, Greece, where they'd been living since being kicked out of Italy by the Roman Emperor Claudius. This was about the year 50, and it was one of many times that Roman emperors kicked all the Jews or Jewish Christians out of Rome, and by the way, very historically documented fact. Priscilla and Aquila were therefore exiles, making ends meet by practicing their trade of tent making. This also happened to be Paul's trade. And this is how the three of them became ministry partners and friends. Priscilla and Aquila may well have become followers of Jesus through Paul's ministry. Acts 18 tells us that they actually all lived and worked together for a year and a half before leaving the city of Corinth. So this adult married couple ended up sharing their life and their home with Paul, an unmarried adult man, for a year and a half. I think if we're honest... Most of us would not want to take non-relative adult male to live in our house. I mean, you're like, I don't want to take my relative males to live in the house. 
but they had been changed thanks to Paul and his ministry. So they sacrificed the comfort and privacy that most of us expect at home in hope of something better, gospel fellowship. You see, there are times when gospel fellowship means sacrificial hospitality. Priscilla and Aquila's actions are an example of what it looks like to live this way. Not only did they demonstrate sacrificial hospitality to Paul by taking him into their home, but the gospel message that he was preaching was stirring up trouble in Corinth. The Jews who rejected Jesus were getting angrier and angrier at Paul and at the Jewish Christians. Romans 16.4 tells us that Priscilla and Aquila once risked their lives for Paul. The Greek says they stuck out their necks for him. Paul lived with them while he worked and preached. So associating with Paul exposed Priscilla and Aquila to risk by those who wanted to silence Paul and to stifle his message about Jesus. So you would think if the guy who's living with you is bringing trouble to the front lawn, it might be time to get him out of the house. But they did not. They accepted the risk. They stuck out their necks. It reminds me of Jesus' words in John 15, 13. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Priscilla and Aquila were willing to risk showing hospitality in a situation that many of us would probably pass on, if we're honest. Sometimes loving others is inconvenient. It can be expensive. It can be uncomfortable. is Rosaria Butterfield. I understand some of you know who she is, but for those of you who don't, I'll tell you her story. In the late 1990s, Rosaria Butterfield was working as a professor in the English and Women's Studies departments at Syracuse University in upstate New York. As an avowed feminist activist living in a same-sex relationship, she thought Bible-believing Christians hated her and she aimed her sharp intellect and skill with the written word squarely at the Christian church and at evangelicals in particular. She published an article criticizing the Christian men's organization Promise Keepers, which some of you are probably old enough to have attended their events. You'll have the Hawaiian shirt in your closet. And a local pastor and his wife, Canon Floy Smith, read her hit piece. And Ken decided to mail her a letter and to invite her, Rosaria, to dinner at he and his wife's home. Rosaria agonized over the letter because even though it challenged her article, it was a generous, fair-handed, and thoughtful rebuttal. And that did not fit her caricature of a conservative Christian. Eventually, she accepted the Smith's invitation to dinner, believing that the dinner would be a great way to do opposition research to learn how bad evangelical Christianity was by grilling the pastor and his wife at their own dinner table, taking what she would learn as ammunition in her crusade. But God has a way of turning what we mean for evil into what he means for good. Rosaria had a wonderful time at dinner. She expected a sermon from this ministry couple, but instead got dessert. She came back the next week. She kept coming back. For two years, Rosaria joined the Smiths in their home for Sunday dinner. 
she ate with people she never would have even talked to otherwise. She sat in a living room and she sung songs out of a hymn book because she always loved singing, but she had so few opportunities to sing within her current circle, social circles. She heard the Bible taught by people who understood it and believed that God uses it to make people new. She began reading the Bible herself. And after two years, Rosaria found new life through faith in Jesus Christ. Of Ken and Floyd Smith, who modeled gospel fellowship through sacrificial hospitality, Rosaria Butterfield later wrote this. The way they practiced hospitality became a living, breathing example of the theology they were teaching. They didn't see me as a project, but as a neighbor. Hospitality, biblically speaking, takes strangers and makes them neighbors, and takes neighbors and makes them the family of God. As you may imagine, Rosaria's new faith in Jesus did not go over well with the English and Women's Studies Department at Syracuse University. It did not go over well with her partner. It did not go over well with her friends, with her colleagues, or with her students. She later wrote, I lost everything but the dog. She was exiled from her tribe and viewed with scorn by those who had once reckoned her a rising star. After going through the experience of losing everything but the dog, the self-described activist married a pastor in 2002, became a homeschool mom of foster and adopted children, and today is one of the most in-demand authors and speakers on the topics of biblical sexuality, biblical hospitality. About sacrificial hospitality, she says something we should all write down. Hospitality is the ground zero of the Christian faith. Hospitality in the Greek means the love of strangers, to befriend and love those who are not our people. It is practiced primarily through caring for a person's physical needs, things like food and shelter, and in our individualistic society, it has become a lost art. We in America have been taught that hospitality is when we pay professionals in hotels and restaurants to serve us comforts at a premium. Hospitality has become a thing not that we share, but that we purchase. We have a hospitality industry, but it seems we have lost a hospitality culture. I have found that the most hospitable people are the ones living in their own senses of exile. I've experienced sweet hospitality from middle-class Americans who look and believe like I do, and I have too experienced sweet hospitality from the homeless in California, the foreigner in El Salvador, and the refugee in Chicago. Hospitality is not charity. Hospitality is the love of strangers. Most hospitable people in the world share something in common. They're the people Jesus calls poor in spirit. They are those who recognize that they are completely dependent upon God. The Apostle Peter tells us that we Christians are strangers and exiles because our home isn't this world. It's God's kingdom. 
we sometimes forget that it is we who are the strangers and the exiles. It is we whose greatest hope is yet to come. And how we live in the here and now demonstrates where our true loyalties lie. Years after first meeting them in Corinth, when Paul writes his letter to the Romans, Priscilla and Aquila have returned to Rome. And Paul greets not just them, but the church that meets in their home. They never stopped modeling gospel fellowship through sacrificial hospitality. God used their hospitality to change the world. When Priscilla and Aquila invited the Apostle Paul into their life, they could not have known how important he would become to spreading the good news about Jesus and that they would be friends for life. Ken and Floyd Smith probably didn't realize either that when they invited the activist English professor from the local university to dinner, that God would use their hospitality to save her from sin and death and to unleash a tremendous force for good into the world. When Jesus reigns in your family, your house becomes a church. Your house might be the church that God wants to use to reach people who would never darken the door of this building. I wonder if we're willing to stick out our necks by welcoming strangers into our lives, into our fellowship. I wonder if God wants to use our hospitality to rescue our neighbors from sin and death, to release tremendous good in the world. Our third person, or people rather, the Roman Christians. They model gospel fellowship through unity, not uniformity. When we look at all the people named in Romans 16, 1 through 16, all 29 of them, we see a cross-section of ancient society. Homeowners and house servants following Jesus together in community, singles and couples, men and women, wealthy and working class, educated and uneducated, Jewish, Roman, and Greek, and everything in between. They met for church in homes like Priscilla and Aquila's because it wasn't legal for Christians to own church buildings at the time. And some of these people, you'll recall, had been thrown out of their homes by the Roman government. They had a sense of fellowship and unity that is difficult to replicate apart from sharing a foxhole with someone. This unity didn't erase, but rather transcended their outward differences. Why? Because gospel fellowship correctly locates a Christian's identity in Jesus. And in so doing, it creates unity, not uniformity. The uniformity tells us that everyone at our church should look the same, that we should all talk the same, that we should all be at the same stage of our life, that we should eat the same kind of food, have the same jobs, the same hobbies, same politics, same, same, same. That's what uniformity tells us. But uniformity is the illusion of unity. On the basis of outward appearances and worldly categories, gospel fellowship is the reality of unity on the basis of the one who created life and defines its ultimate meaning, Jesus Christ. Gospel fellowship does not mean uniformity. It means unity within diversity. 
Unity within diversity makes us lean into our true identity in Jesus as children of God. Because as the Bible says in the old King James, God is no respecter of persons. When we stand before God, we will, he will not ask to see our voter registration cards. Sorry to tell you. He will not demand our birth certificates. The GPA that some of us are stressing over right now will not matter to him. He will not ask us to self-identify our race, gender, or sexuality. He won't care who's on our Twitter feed or which news network we like to watch. He will not do a soft credit check. We will not impress him with our resumes. He will not segregate us into heavenly ghettos. He will not ask us who we are, but whose we are. He will ask not what we have done, but what we have let him do through us. God equips and calls his people to serve in various ways. And he uses our diverse upbringings and circumstances to do this. God knows that oftentimes the open door to Jesus starts with people who share our outward commonalities. The most eloquent sermon ever spoken in English is nothing but noise to someone who only speaks Spanish. Some people don't want to talk to a pastor. Bruce is snorting over there. He knows people don't want to talk to pastors. Some people don't want to come to your church, but they'll come to your barbecue. They'll get to know you because you have kids in the same sport or you're into the same hobby or they'll sense that their traumatic background is not so different from yours. See, these outward commonalities can be that slightly open door showing others that deep down there is something different about people who call Jesus not just Savior but Lord. The local church needs lots of different kinds of people for exactly this reason. See, God allows us to maintain our essential Christian unity as well as our outward diversity for the same reason that our bodies are not made only of hands or of eyes or of feet. Every part of the body is needed for it to function optimally. Earlier in Romans, Paul wrote this about that. Chapter 12, verse 4. For just as each of us has one body with many members, that means parts, and these parts don't all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each part belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. When the Apostle Paul talks to the people of God about what it means to be the people of God, he, he says things like this in Galatians 3. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male, no female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. He adds in Colossians, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, 
barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Unity means that though differences exist, they do not most importantly define our gospel fellowship. Jesus does. When the Romans model for us unity over uniformity, we find that in reflecting them, our focus is less on all of us looking the same or having the feeling of fellowship that comes from sharing in these outside incidentals with people. Rather, the Romans show us that we should focus on the person in whom we find our ultimate identity, Jesus. The New Testament's focus is on the assured truth that by having fellowship with Jesus through faith, that he died for our sins so we could have new life in God, we all share in a fellowship that will never end. We call this belief gospel. We call the people who believe the gospel Christians. And we call the Christian community that enjoys this fellowship church. When we describe gospel fellowship, we find that we are in reality describing the way the Christian church is supposed to look. Romans 16 has a lot of people's names in it. The snapshot of everyday followers of Jesus who lived in a place and a time where their faith sometimes made them homeless. It's about the community God formed in the most unexpected of places by lots of different people. And it's about what Jesus did in and through these people's servant leadership, their sacrificial hospitality, and the unity they found in gospel fellowship. It models what God will do in and through us if we will turn to Jesus and let him show us who we really are. When we reflect God's word in our lives, we reflect his intention for gospel fellowship. And when the world sees us really living this way, they will hunger and thirst for what God offers to anyone who will come to him with open hands and open hearts. Let's pray. Father, you are good. Thank you for preserving your word for us through the centuries in the parts of it that may seem like they shouldn't matter so much to us. Help us reflect the gospel fellowship of our ancient brothers and sisters. May we lead one another through service. May we show hospitality in our church, in our homes, and in our daily lives. May we find unity with one another by finding it first and foremost with you. May we always be a city on a hill. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.